Father, Son, and Spirit, we uh, step into a new year together, and in many ways, uh, a new year is just an arbitrary change in the calendar, and then in other ways, it is a fresh start, a time to uh, rethink and reevaluate and make new commitments, and so I pray that this really would be a fresh start and a new year for us individually, but also for us collectively as a church community here in this place. God, we give this year to you. We trust that you are doing something, something new and interesting and fresh. Not just, not just here at Discovery, but that you're doing something new in your creation. And so, God, would you give us the the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Would you cultivate in us a deep sense of gratitude for the love that you have shown us? And may we be a community that shows and shares that love with other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat, and as you're sitting down, you can meet me in Luke chapter 15. And as you're finding that, Luke is in the the New Testament, one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. As you're looking that up, um, last year at this time, the first Sunday of 2023, uh, the power was out, and we did not gather. So we are already off to a much better start here in 2024. It's great to be together. Great to see you. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And we're beginning a new year, but also a new conversation as we think about our, uh, our vision, our mission as a church, as a community of Jesus followers here in this place. So Luke 15 is our jumping off point. I, I, I'm going to read uh, the very beginning and the very end of this chapter. And then as we make our way here through Uh, Through this together today, we'll fill in the middle part. But this is one of the most uh, famous, well-known scenes in in the life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, He's doing his thing. It causes some issues. And in response to that, he tells some stories, some of his most famous stories. A story about a shepherd a story about a woman who loses a coin, and then a story about a family. So again, we're going to read the beginning, and we're going to read the end, and then we'll fill the rest of it in as we walk through this together. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now, that word muttered, uh, you know, in kind of our our English vernacular, you hear the word muttered, and it's kind of like, right? That word in the Greek is where we get the word diabolical from. So it's not just, there's like some stuff behind that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then fast forward to the end of the story, Jesus This is a character in the story, but these are the words of Jesus. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a story I've told this several times. So those of you who are are Discovery Old Timers will be like, I've heard this one before. But there's this story about a rabbi who was a, a famous teacher around the time of Jesus who would oftentimes get invited to go speak in different places around Israel, Palestine, Jerusalem, all those areas. And so on one particular occasion, he's out, he teaches all day in a synagogue somewhere, and he decides, you know what, I'm just going to head home tonight rather than hang out here. So he starts the journey home. The sun sets. It gets dark. He loses his way. He should have gone right. He goes left. And he ends up in front of this Roman military outpost. Big, big gate, big intimidating walls. And he has this moment of like, ah, what should I do? Do I turn around and try to retrace my steps? Do I go and and look for help? This can sometimes be a bad situation. You know, what what do I do in this moment? So he decides to go for it. And he goes and knocks on the door, big old iron gate. And from up on top the wall, this Roman centurion very gruffly says, who are you and what are you doing here? The rabbi's kind of like, ooh, what what have I gotten myself into? But he's quick. And he goes, how much do they pay you? And now the Roman guard is like, what is happening here? (laughs) He's thrown off a little bit. He's like, what is it to you? What is it, who, what is it, who cares how much I get paid? Five silver coins a day. And the rabbi says, excellent. I will pay you twice that amount if you come home with me and ask me those same two questions every morning when I leave the house. Who are you? And what are you doing here? These are great questions. These are great questions for us individually, but they are also important questions for us collectively. As a church community, as a church family, who are we and what are we doing here? Our our goal over the next five weeks as we think about our vision and our mission is to answer those questions. Who are we and what are we doing here? The who is going to be the focus of the next four weeks as we get into our values, why we do things the way that we do them. Today we're going to sit with the what question. What are we doing here? What is our purpose? Why do we exist as a church in this place in 2024? Tim Keller, who uh, sadly passed away this last year, but just a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Tim Keller said, in 2,000 years, so from the time of Jesus up until now, in 2,000 years, we have never learned how to do mission in a place that was post-Christian rather than pre-Christian. We've never had to learn how to do mission in a place that was post-Christian rather than pre-Christian. If you are in ministry, and I would expand that to say if you are a part of a church, In 2024, it is going to take all of your life to help the church figure out how to do this. This is central to our purpose, our calling, our challenge as a church community. This is our what, our why, 
It's to go on a quest together to learn how to engage with the mission of God in a post-Christian culture. Now, got to do a couple of things here before we come back to the the scene in Luke chapter 15. First of all, let's just define what post-Christian culture means. And and I want to say here that there is uh, an endless number of articles, blog posts, tweets, books about post-Christian culture. So what I'm about to give you is just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to do more more digging on this, you certainly can. But in a post-Christian culture, the church is no longer a central figure in the life of most people. The church is not considered to be an authoritative voice when it comes to morality, creativity, or progress. In fact, the church is oftentimes seen as a step back, not a step forward. In a post-Christian culture, spirituality becomes hyper-individualized and is oftentimes defined outside of the church or outside of some organized structure. And then the third sort of feature is that the primary vehicle for the formation of people is now friendship. I think the fancy phrase there is uh, homogenous relational networks. But friendships, pop culture, and academia, these are the places we go to get our information to be formed, to find out what it means to to be here and what our purpose is. And so I think Tim Keller is right. The world has changed. We have a new challenge. And yet, at the same time, I think that there are a lot of parallels between our cultural moment, between Davis and Jesus' context over 2,000 years ago. Both are pluralistic, multi-religious, multi-ethnic cultures clashing together in the shadow of global superpowers during a time of massive change. All of which creates a number of different friction points, but also a number of different opportunities. New opportunities, new ways, new ideas for people to discover and rediscover the good news of Jesus, the good news of God's shalom. This is the the title of our conversation this year is shalom. This is an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, that the writers of the Old Testament story would use to describe the way that God intended his world, his creation to function and flourish in a network of right relationships, right relationship between God and us, between human beings, between human beings and the rest of creation. And, you know, I gotta say, every, every year is... Uh, you know, has its own sort of potential for craziness. But man, 2024 feels like it could go off the rails pretty quick, right? When, when you think about the, just the continual pace of change, right? When you think about technological advancements, when you think about the reality of wars that are going on around our world right now as we speak, 
And then when you think about, oh, yeah, it's an election year here in the United States. Could get weird in 2024. And so more than ever, we need the good news of Jesus. Right? More than ever, we need God's shalom. right relationship with God and with each other. And I believe when I, when I hear uh, quotes like Keller's, when we talk about how do we do church, how do we do mission in 2024 in these changing times in this post-Christian world, whatever term you want to put on it, when I think about it, uh, here, here's the thing that I want us to hear this year. Uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today and over the next couple of weeks is not new. Right, it, you know, we're talking about our vision, but really, it's just a reminder of who we are and why we're here. I do think there is a piece to this that is new, and it's that we're, I think, leaders in this. I don't know. This is not meant to be shade or or critical, but I don't know of any other churches in our area that are doing what we are doing, taking seriously this call to reimagine church and mission in a post-Christian world. And I really believe God has protected and preserved us for this moment through pandemics, through, through leadership transitions, through a building project that continues to go on on our front porch. I believe that God has preserved and prepared us for this moment, for this mission, not just to do it, but also to be leaders in it. To be an example, this is what it can look like to do church in this current moment. We take very seriously the call to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves in this place so that people here can discover and rediscover the good news of Jesus. But the next step for us, I believe, is to embrace this challenge and help lead the church into the future. This is who we are and why we're here. Now, back to Luke 15 for just a moment. At the center of everything, the story of Scripture, the mission of God, our personal stories, and even human history as it continues to unfold, at the center of everything is Jesus. And so I want us to see just a couple of things that he does here in Luke 15 that shape how we approach the challenge of reimagining mission in a post-Christian culture. It's really not rocket science, but it is, it is so foundational to who Jesus is, and therefore it must be foundational to who we are. So the first thing that we see Jesus do here is he takes risks. Jesus takes risks. He's willing to make moves that are potentially upsetting, that are unconventional, and that are controversial. Again, right out of the gate, verse 1 Eating and welcoming notorious sinners, leading to diabolical grumbling. <laughs> but also, as you go through the stories, there's a tremendous risk at play in each of these stories. 
First story is about a shepherd who leaves his 100 sheep, loses one, leaves 99, just as we sang a moment ago, leaves 99 behind to find one. That's risky. Second story is about a woman who has 10 coins, loses one, disrupts her whole life to find that one lost coin. Risky. Unconventional, unusual. The final story, a father gives away half of his property to his foolish son. Risky. Each of these stories is meant to show us something about who God is, what God is like, what what God's heart is for. And what we see is that God takes risks. God takes risks on us. God takes a risk when he sends his son to be with us. God takes risks by inviting us to be a part of this. By inviting us to to do the same, to take our own risks. When we take a risk, we put ourselves in a position of vulnerability and trust. To take a risk is to live by faith. To take a risk is to live by faith. Now, risky behavior by definition comes with a cost, right? Might fail. Might not work out well. Some people might think you're a little weird. Some people might mutter and complain. Some people will complain. But this should not stop us from taking risks. Now, there's a bunch of different risks that we've taken over the years. The primary one that I want to speak to today is the risk that Jesus takes that that sort of sets this whole scene up. Jesus directs his time and energy towards notorious sinners. Towards people for whom the religious system of the day was not working. We might say it this way. Jesus directs his time, his energy, his focus towards those who are outside of the church. If you want to grow a church, compete for Christians. But if you want to create a movement, a movement of shalom, make space for spiritual explorers, which is a risk, right? It's risky to center a church around spiritual explorers, but this is what Jesus did. In part, and he says this very clearly a couple different times, in part because that, that's, that's why he came, <laughs> right? It's for those people who were asking questions, who, who were exploring, who were on the outside. Spiritual explorers are exploring. It's a deep thought, right? They're open. They're seeking. They are ready for good news. This is who Jesus makes room for. And that risk, it it produced leaders, guides, multiplication. It produced this movement that ultimately takes down the Roman Empire and changes the world. This movement 
that's called the church that we are a part of now 2,000 years later. So Jesus took risks. And then second, Jesus was with people. Again, this might feel like a very obvious thing, but, but it's so important to say. Jesus was with people. There is no magic marketing formula for doing post-Christian mission. The heart of bringing shalom in any culture, any context, any time, any place is withness. And so whether that is in our neighborhoods or at work or at school or on the softball field, wherever you are in your everyday life, there is tremendous potential for God's shalom to bring transformation because you are there. You are with people. And when we isolate, when we sort of uh, take a step back from those places, the mission of God suffers. Jesus was with people. He gave them his time and his presence. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to sit uh, and listened to a woman who was a, a missionary in Iraq. And she talked about how there are all sorts of challenges for her as a Christian American woman to do ministry and share the good news of Jesus with people in Iraq. And so what she said, and this is the, <clears throat> the thing that has stuck with me ever since that conversation, is she said, it takes 100 cups of tea to even get to the point where I can share my story with someone. A hundred cups of tea to get to the place where you've built enough trust, enough rapport. You've been with people enough to be able to share the good news of Jesus. And I think there's a lot of parallels there between her experience and what it is like to do mission in a post-Christian culture. It may not be a hundred cups of tea, but it might be a hundred cups of coffee or a hundred beers, or maybe a less beer. I don't know. Well, <laughs> it might be a hundred uh, very superficial conversations on the sideline of a sports field, or a, a hundred you know nods as you're taking the trash out and saying hello to your neighbor. Whatever it is, it's going to take time. It's going to take time, but, it, but through time and your presence, through your withness, opportunities to point people towards the good news of Jesus will come. So Jesus takes risks, he's with people, and then finally he tells stories. Again, three stories about a shepherd and a lost sheep, a woman and a lost coin, a father and a lost son. Three stories that are meant to reveal the heart of God. This is who God is. This is what God cares about. This is God's why, his dream for his creation. Something is lost, and so an all-out search takes place, and when that lost thing is found, party time. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus cares about. 
this is his why, and his why should be our why. Look for lost things and celebrate like crazy when they're found. So let's take risks. Let's be with people. Let's tell great stories. Tell stories of shalom. Right relationship showing up. Let's tell stories of God at work. Let's tell stories of exploration and discovery. Take risks, be with people, tell great stories. Each week as we go through this conversation, we're going to get to hear from different people in our community. So this morning, I want you to welcome Yuan as he comes to share a little bit of his story, and then he's going to lead us to the communion table. Give him a hand. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Um, yep, my name is Ewan. I'm one of the elders here at Discovery. And first of all, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. <laughs> um, I've been gone for the last two and a half weeks in Asia, just visiting with family. So haven't seen a lot of you guys in a while. So it's good to be back. Missed you guys. Um, and before kind of diving into my story, I wanted to just kind of build on this idea of spiritual explorer, just exploration in general, because uh, it's fresh on my mind. So, you know, when my wife and I travel, we like to explore. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as explorers when we travel. We like to, I think, just go places, follow our noses, and see what food we end up finding, and eating a little bit here and a little bit there, walking around and just seeing, hey, that looks like a cool park, you know, let's go explore that. And kind of that's our style when we travel. Um, this trip was uh, interesting because we got to travel with uh, my in-laws <laughs> extensively for two and a half weeks. And, you know, my father-in-law, he's great. I love him. He has a different travel style. He's more of the sightseeing type who uh, has a plan for when we're going to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and traveling is more about finding the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. Now, you know, obviously those are two very different styles of traveling, not saying one's right or wrong, but they are very different. And obviously I knew that they're very different, but after two and a half weeks, I now know in a fresh way just how different they are. Um, and, and, you know, it's when you're traveling like that, there's always, they, they just don't mesh, right? And one, either the sightseer is going to feel like, hey, why are we so off schedule and what are we doing right now? Or the explorer is going to feel stifled. And for me, it was walking past an amazing smelling food stall and never getting the chance to figure out what that smell was or what it tastes like, right? Um, and I say that as an analogy, uh, just kind of a, a fun analogy, but I think when we think about you know, what it means for us to create space for spiritual explorers, right? It's for the last 2,000 years, you know, as Steve talked about, I think the church has been operating, you know, in this pre-Christian space and really acting more like um, sightseeing tour guides that would say, hey, here's how you get from point A to point B, right? You have Romans Road, you have systematic theology, you have Christianity 101, 201, 301. But in a post-Christian society where people aren't looking to the church necessarily for answers anymore, right, where they want to experience and explore, they're looking for something different. And I fully believe 
with all my heart that if we create space for people to explore Jesus and who he is, they will taste and they will see just how amazing and how good Jesus is and how good his story that he's inviting us to is. But we have to create that space, right? And if we don't create that space, not only is the church failing to help people discover the goodness of Jesus, but we're stifling and we're getting in the way of people who want to explore. You see, I grew up in the church, um, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was a great experience right? growing up. I had loving parents, loving Sunday school teachers, youth counselors, um, and I had a good time kind of growing up in the church. And if you know me and the way I'm wired, I'm wired to want to know the answers, to figure things out, to figure out how things work. And so ever since I was in middle school, I used to play mental chess with myself um, and try to figure out, you know, if this Christianity worldview thing kind of holds up and how it works. And I did that, you know, middle school, high school, um, college. And, and what was interesting was what I found was that the more I learned through those years and as I moved into, you know, some seminary coursework, the more I was having to maybe modify or erode a little bit of, you know, how simple I thought um, and how straightforward I thought faith was supposed to be. And, you know, at some point, it was ironic because I was literally teaching a series on the rational kind of defensibility of Christianity. And I, I realized that, you know what, I'm constantly having to defend what I believe as an insider who assumes that it's all true. But what happens if I actually put myself in the shoes of an outsider looking in? What happens if I actually put myself in the shoes of somebody that says, I don't yet believe, and what does that look like? And so I said, you know what? Let's bite the bullet. Let's do that. So I put myself in the shoes and said, hey, I, I don't believe. Let's see if this holds up. And as I did that, and I was in my you know, mid-20s at the time, it was, there are two things that I really remember. One was I remember standing in the back of a church service and crying because I couldn't sing the words to a song that I had once sang so fervently because I believed it. And two, I remembered that despite all my best friends being in church, I found myself feeling like I would rather have a conversation with a complete stranger on atheist subreddit because they understood me better. And I say that not to you know, bash my friends. They're, they're still my friends today, and we're still in touch. But I say that because you know, my friends in the church who loved me with everything they had, and I'd used all the tools, ironically, that I had helped equip them with <laughs> to try to help me kind of find Jesus, were coming with these tools that were meant to help me get from point A to point B, when really what I longed for was an open-ended conversation without feeling like I already know where you're trying to get me to go, right? And that's why I felt like Atheist Subreddit was a much better place for me to have a conversation. And it was when I put myself in the shoes of an outsider that I began to realize that if I wanted to explore spirituality and just explore life and the meaning of life and what might be out there, church was not the place to have that conversation. And you know, might be wondering what, how I'm here, 
right now, right? And it's not because, you know, I had some epiphany or some amazing answer that came up. Actually, it was just God putting people in my life who are willing to walk with me in the midst of that tension, right? Who are willing to create that space for me to explore. There's people like my brother and my sister-in-law who were passionately in love with Jesus, but shared some of my questions right, and didn't have all the answers. It was people like my wife, Joy, who was at then my fiance, who was willing to just enter into the pain of my doubt and to sit there and cry with me, even though she didn't have the answers either. But it was those moments and those people that validated, I think, the way I felt and the questions I had and created space for me, created that freedom for me to then rediscover the good news of Jesus with new eyes. And, you know, here's the kicker, right? As I was beginning to rediscover the good news of Jesus with new eyes, I initially entered that rediscovery phase thinking, okay, like, maybe I don't have to throw it all out. I can rediscover this Jesus thing, but it's probably never going to be the same, right? I'm probably always going to have some watered-down version of faith and watered-down idea of following Jesus, and that's just how it's going to be, and that's okay. But what was amazing was as I started to rediscover the good news of Jesus with fresh eyes, I began to realize that for the last 20 years, I had been trying to make the scriptures in the word of God tell a linear story, when in reality, I think the scriptures present themselves in a much more nuanced and complex way, right? That the scriptures don't present themselves as an A to B storyline so much as it presents itself as a story that's full of tension, right? That's full of kind of unresolved loose ends that invites us to wrestle with God. That as I look at the creation accounts or, or the wisdom literature or Job or Ecclesiastes and Proverbs or even the Gospels, right? It's all about the story of Jesus and that the scriptures present themselves as something that's active and dynamic and living and still at work today. And so that for me was just such a a moment that made me realize, man, like I can enter in to this following Jesus and rediscovering who he is with all my questions. And he wants all those questions. Right? I look at the name of Israel, right, as somebody who wrestles with God. And as I look at the course of human history and church history over the last 2,000 years, I think it dawned on me that there are so many moments in church history where the church thought they had it all figured out. And then two, three, four, five hundred years later, the church looks back and it's like, oh man, we really had that wrong, <laughs> right? And in many ways, it's when the church, in those moments when the church realizes how wrong she was, that you really begin to see shalom come out of those moments. And if that's been the case for the last 2,000 years, I'm sure it's also the case for us today, right? That the church is at her best when we continue to explore and when we continue to wrestle with God and wonder what new thing he is continuing to do. Um, and so, you know, I believe... I'm here as an, an elder and a leader at Discovery today precisely because I don't have all the answers, right? Because I continue to explore and I continue to wrestle. And that's 
my hope for us as a community is that we would be continual explorers, um, that we would be guides, not because we're here to tell people how to get from point A to point B, but because we're the type of guides who can come alongside spiritual explorers and explore along with them because we too are continuing to explore. And I believe that's when we get to see what new thing God is doing because he continues to work and we're open to what he wants to do next. So I wanted to invite the band to come back up as we you know, move into a time of communion at a table. Right? Every week we get to remember and celebrate the good news of Jesus and to remember his body and his blood that was given for us on the cross. And when we think about the story of Jesus and what it means to be a spiritual explorer, I think communion just highlights that. Right? Because what Jesus gave to his people wasn't an equation or formula on what it means to follow him. But rather what he gave them was a ritual to remember him and a ritual to partake of him and to enter his story. Right? The whole story of creation and of scripture and of all the tension and questions and loose ends culminate in this moment of the cross. And then from that moment of the cross emanates out into us, his people, and into new creation as Jesus works to make all things new. And I still have so many questions on how that's all going to come together and what it's all going to look like. And that's okay. Right? Jesus invites us into that so that we can continue to be excited about what new thing he's going to do. So let me pray for us, and then we can come to the table. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you that you are a God that is so big that undoubtedly we're going to have questions unanswered about who you are and what you're doing. And at the same time, you have come, the person of Jesus, and engage with us and invites us to engage with you. And we thank you, God, for just your goodness and your faithfulness that continues to draw us to you in the midst of our questions. God, as we look to the world around us, the world that you have such a heart for, that you take great risks for, God, we pray that we as a community would follow you in that risk-taking, that we as a community would not be content to sit in the comforts of what we can wrap our heads around. God, but rather we would hold things with open hands so that we might continue to explore the depths of your good news and how big your gospel is and that we would be a community and a space where people can explore together, where people can come and taste and see that you are good and that your good news is an adventure for us to live on and follow. God, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.